This episode's guest for the Safety Doc Podcast is Morgan Ballas. Learn more about Morgan by visiting his website, campus-safety.us. That's campus-safety.us. And follow Morgan on Twitter, at campussafetydad. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Recorded down here in the North Star Recording Studio, it is a brisk 57 degrees right now, which makes for an awesome climate for today's show. We're going to heat things up by talking about school safety with Morgan Ballas. He is the Director of Strategic Planning and Training with Campus Safety Alliance, which is a network of emergency management professionals, law enforcement trainers, and educational leaders providing evidence-based safety solutions for pre-K through 12 facilities and faith-based organizations. Morgan has an impressive resume. He's a firearms instructor, spent several years in the United States Marine Corps. He's currently completing a doctoral degree in emergency management at Capella University. Morgan, welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. David, thank you so much for having me on. Wow, you're a busy guy with a very impressive resume. Um, did I leave anything out that you want to want to share with people? I'm, uh, I, I left a lot out, but anything. Yeah. Uh, um, I, you know, I, I think most important than anything, I'm 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 a um, I'm a father. Um, I'm a husband. My wife is an educator, so they are really the motivation and the passion um, for for what I do. Awesome, awesome, yeah. Uh, Morgan, my dad was a principal for 37 years, and uh, when he retired, my he and my mom uh, built a house one block away from the school. So every day when they get up, they look outside, they they can look down at the school where where he taught for so many years. So yeah, it's it's definitely a part of my family also. So um, today we're going to talk about preparing for an active assailant on campus. And of course, everybody's heard about intruder drills, uh, active shooter drills, uh, people being on campuses who shouldn't be there, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, we think of campuses K-12, well, it can be a, a community-based site for preschoolers. It can be a traditional brick-and-mortar site for 4K, a portable building, uh, off-campus placements for students. So there's a lot of areas we need to consider for safety. So one of the things um, you use when you present with um, organizations, with schools, is you present the data or the data, whatever. But uh, what, what data set do you use when you talk about shooter events according to the FBI? Because I, I know people will say there's been this many school shootings or, or this many, and those numbers vary. It's, it's nebulous. How do you clarify that when you go in and, and educate, you know, basically – um, school leaders who are very panicked and wanting wanting to do the right thing. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, the challenge when we look at specifically active assailant events on campus is, of course, they get a lot of media attention. So, like you describe in your book, we tend to over focus 
on the you know the the preparation the response and the things that we can do to to really prepare our stakeholders for these type of events and part of that challenge is that you have a lot of different organizations providing a lot of different data and it be it it, it starts to water down what we're actually trying to focus on because if we're being on, on honest it's a very politicizing topic it, no one wants to think about children being murdered in schools and you have different organizations on different sides of the spectrum who really at the end of the day our end goal is the same it's to protect our children we just have some ideological differences on how we think we can get there so as i started to conduct my research and really look into this um, i wanted to come up with a very clear definition of what was an active shooter or an active assailant using terms such as mass shootings um, it becomes very difficult to get a clear definition and what i found is that many of the organizations that are using terms such as mass shootings it really starts to inflate the numbers and right. what it does from a consultant standpoint or from a research standpoint is it starts to distract from what we actually need to do to either prevent or prepare for these tragedies so I lean on the FBI data, which is very clear. It's very distinct. They haven't changed their formula. They've adapted it somewhat. For example, you know, in the past uh, three or four years, they've now included open spaces as its own category. When we're looking at events such as Las Vegas um, or the um, Garlic Festival that happened here in California. Uh, but it's, it's very clear. And what it does is it helps us drive us as researchers as we're looking for those themes or those categories looking at that empirical data it's just it's just more distinct and more clear for us and we're not getting mixed up in these different terms so would you explain this uh to a school administrator or at a school presentation um i guess what are what are the questions uh, that you receive uh, in that setting are they asking well how many how many shootings have happened inside of a school or on a school campus or at a football field. And now, you know, this a basketball game after school. Are, are those um, subsets starting to become a more discussed or more asked by, you know, people? So generally when we're working with, with schools, inevitably the conversation leads towards these active assailant events. Um, there, there's what, they're what are categorized as low frequency, high consequence. So when we're looking at the FBI data, from 2000 to 2018, we're waiting for the final report to come out for last year. Um, they've identified 42 incidents, which they've classified on pre-K to 12th grade campuses. So that's a very small number when we look over that entire now almost 20 year period. Right. However, the consequences or the results of those actions, not just in the loss of life or the injuries, but the continuity of services, the psychological impact, they are absolutely tremendous. When we're looking at different, um, when we're, we're doing any hazard or threat analysis, those are the two components of the equation. How often does it occur? What is the likelihood? And then what are the consequences? When we look at natural disasters in the United States, active assailant events have killed more children in our schools than all natural disasters combined over the past 20 years. The only thing that comes close, and it's not even close, is, is tornadoes. It, it really is. So when we're talking right. about the focus, 
absolutely we need to prepare for earthquakes and tornadoes or hurricanes based off of where your region is. Those are more likely to happen. However, we can't ignore the consequences of an active assailant event. So when I'm working with a school, I just want them to help understand that we need to prioritize our resources, our training, our funding, and we can't ignore the active assailant component. However, it cannot be our sole and only pro, um, priority. You mentioned uh, tornadoes. Actually, uh, when I presented in July on PBS, I focused on a community uh, just about two hours away from where I'm at, Barneville, Wisconsin, and they had an F5 tornado in 1984. It was one of the most powerful on record. Uh, basically destroyed over 90% of the town. They did have fatalities. It was overnight, but um, I also was looking then at some school data and did find, you know, we, we've had, I don't know if it was 13 or 15 deaths in the last 10 or 15 years right. um, with tornadoes, but yeah, being being in a second um, tier, and it's been since 1958 that we've had a a significant loss of life in a school fire that would have been Our Lady of Angels in yeah. Chicago. So you talked about two points, how often and consequences. And when you talk about consequences, um, few people get to that discussion, in my experience. So I'm, I'm thankful that you brought that up because consequences, and before that you talked about psychological impact. Um, when I research schools, when I, when I talk with school administrators, where there has been either an intruder on campus or there's been an intruder and then a subsequent um, active shooter on campus. Um, they say, you know what people overlook right away is everybody on campus now has been impacted by this trauma. Not only everybody on campus, but then, you know, the parents of the students, the spouses of the workers on campus. So it becomes this massive number of people who are impacted by this trauma and that doesn't get addressed. I mean, and to, you know, several years out, people are still feeling the pain from that. They haven't had a time to debrief therapy sessions. Um, just, just to put an aside to this. So something that I do is I'm a debriefer for our county, um, for um, emergency management professionals who have encountered traumatic events. I live close to an interstate, literally a mile away. So the, periodically there will be substantial um, you know, vehicle accidents, and then the first responders, fire police, there's a team that's brought in to help them debrief through these events immediately afterwards. And sometimes I'm called in to be a member of that, that team. So I know how important that is, something we don't do in schools. So tell me about your experiences with that, um, the discussions you have of saying, hey, there's this, this whole other side too that you need to be prepared for and you need to mobilize quickly because, you know, Every, not everyone, but this is largely overlooked. Yes, it's, it's, it's a conversation I have a lot of empathy for and personal experience. I spent 11 years as an infantry Marine exposed to multiple combat tours. Um, so I, I understand the impacts and the effects of PTSD. Obviously, it just doesn't affect you know, our, our servicemen and women overseas. Um, it traumatically affects our first responders who arguably see much more violence and and trauma than we would even in a combat uh, zone. Uh, you know, I talked about my motivation being my wife and my kids, but really my catalyst into this industry was my mom survived the Gabrielle Giffords, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords shooting in 2011. Um, I'm from Tucson. My wife is from Tucson. I actually was home on recruiting duty at that time, recruiting officers at the University of Arizona. And my mom was literally standing at the table table 
uh, when when the violence erupted. Um, she just happened to be between a pillar and the shooter. She would save the life of Ron Barber, who would go on to be our congressman, replacing uh, Gabrielle Giffords in that area. And I never imagined as a combat veteran that I would be counseling my own mother on PTSD and survivor's guilt and the harms of self-medication. So I have a lot of empathy and understanding when it when it comes to that situation. And it's a huge component. And it's it's about preparing us. And the great thing is, is schools are set up for success because they already have counselors and school yes. psychologists. It's taking it a step further and recognizing that, you know, maybe we need an MOU or, or, or some sort of agreement with outside agencies that can now come in and provide those services. And it's not even just for something as horrific as a school shooting. Um, here in our community of Fallbrook, we experienced wildfires that devastated the community. So having those um, counseling services that can now support when people are displaced from their homes as well. And their resources that are out there. Um, and it's something that absolutely needs to be part of that school safety plan and having that foresight with those schools. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Morgan, well, first, thank you for um, you know, sharing the experience with your, your mother. I mean, it's powerful. I am thankful um, she wasn't uh, injured in that, but I'm also recognizing once you experience something like that, I, I don't know how you go a day without thinking uh, about it. Um, you you discussed uh, memorandums of understanding, and right now I'm actually teaching a class for aspiring school administrators. And last class, we discussed memorandums of understanding. And part of the context of that was to make sure you had in place um, an agreement with your neighboring school districts. If there was something, as, as you indicated, it could be a, it could be a wildfire, it doesn't have to be um, an intruder event. Sometimes in schools, it's, it would be, for example, a school suicide, a student or staff member, somebody completing suicide, that if you contact these um, other districts, they immediately, through the uh, agreement, are able to provide you with counselors, social workers, um, ad additional staff to help you in the short term, and then usually you can work with them or with community partners on a long-term basis to make sure that you're providing uh, supports and services for students. And I'll tell you a story on, on that. When I was a school administrator, so I was a special education director, and we had a neighboring school district uh, where a student had completed um, suicide in the morning. And I, I knew the, the administrator very well, the special education director at this, this school. He called me up and he said, 
um, we had this happen and, you know, I'm, I'm trying, this is what I'm doing. Can you send some counselors, some staff over to help us? And I said, I'll get right on it. And in my system at that time, I had to go through a chain of command to authorize to send somebody out because we did not have a memorandum of understanding. I didn't put it in place. It was an oversight on my part. And by the time I got to all of the people I needed to, to have an approval, including the superintendent who was out of the district that day, a few hours had passed. And it was just, it was something that should not have happened. So what you said about memorandum of understanding, absolutely put that in place. And that literally is then picking up the phone. And within five minutes, you have people mobilized and providing assistance where it needs to be. So thanks for bringing that up. It, it was something, um, you know, again, a, a point for me, and I can use it now as I go forward and I, I educate people about, um, you know, these, these types of services. So we see, we see it with something as simple as, you know, as sites are developing their school safety plan, they're identifying one, hopefully more than one reunification um, point or offsite evacuation point. And when we go in and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our safety audit with them, we'll ask, well, who's the point of contact? Do you have, do they know that this is their site? Right. And right. Al- almost in, in entirely all of them, they, the, the people whose site they have identified, they have no idea. Right. There yeah. was one um, church that was an off-school um, reunification point for a school, and we contacted them, and they're like, no, we had no idea. You're more than welcome to use it, but yes. we have a new key or we have a new code. So let us make sure that you have a point of contact for someone where if you need to use us, you can now get on our site. So it doesn't even have to be a situation as horrible as we think. It could simply be, hey, we have you know, a gas leak yeah. on campus, and we need to evacuate right. Well, do we even have permission to go there? Can we even gain access to it? So it's those little things that really go a long way. Yeah, and that's congruent with my experiences. Uh, every couple of years going out to a site and then, you know, they've turned over. They have different staff. You said they put in different locks, different mechanisms. And it's not that they're unwilling to help you. They're very willing to help you. They're just saying, I wasn't aware of this or, you know, there are some things that have changed that we need to make you aware of. And actually a gas leak, I had that happen. At an elementary school, the custodian uh, was mowing and backed into the the gas meter, and of course, we needed to evacuate the school and go to an offsite um, area. Um, Morgan, t- let me let me pause at this point and have you describe your work with um, Campus Safety Alliance. So, Campus Safety Alliance really came about because as I started to specifically focus on schools. I realized that there was a huge gap. And what that gap was, was everyone was coming from their own expertise and providing that one single view. So we see this a lot, I'm a law enforcement trainer specifically in active shooter response. So I would see this a lot, I would go in and observe um, officers providing a, you know, a a run, hide, fight training or some sort of options-based training to the site. And it was from the single lens of an officer. Or they're an officer that maybe even they don't really understand adult learning theory and how to essentially teach other adults. And they're trying to train a first grade teacher the way they would train another officer. And even if their content was good and it was where it should be, the messaging was bad. And of course, I'm not an expert in anything and everything. So I would have schools that say, hey, we need support. 
um, building our entire emergency operations plan or we need support specifically with conflict resolution. So what do I do? I create a team of other experts. I'm not the one-stop shop. I've been absolutely blessed to be surrounded by people that are much smarter than I am. And what we do is we come together and we collaborate. I can give recommendations on door locks all day long, but if it violates fire code, it's not doing that school any good. So I need someone with that background and that expertise. Um, What we don't want is a lot of groupthink and a bunch of yes men that are just here to, you know, working directly with vendors to support a specific product. We want what's best for that school or that site. So we need those individuals from those different backgrounds to help guide us to make sure we're seeing it from every single perspective. Because as a consultant, I'm not here to make the final decision. I'm here to provide recommendations and the pros and cons of those recommendations objectively. So that way the site can make the best decision for what's what's for them. So tell me how you involve um, people at the site, whether it be teachers or even students in informing you so you can understand, oh, okay, so we do have, um, for example, some students with mobility uh, disabilities. Um, So here are some things that we need to consider during either drills or exits or even how they receive the information. Um, So tell tell me about that. So our our approach is very systematic and it's very site-specific. What we find a lot of times is we go into a setting that we're like, we active assignment training. And I say, okay, I can give you the training, but it's it's not going to actually be productive for you because I don't understand the infrastructure you have in place. Do your policies and procedures actually support the training I'm going to give? Are your communication systems going to support the mindset that we're trying to push your staff to? Do they even have the authority to use those communication systems? Do they know how to use those communication systems? So when we come in and work with a site or with a district, our first job is we're just collecting data, as much data as we can get our hands on. So we're looking at their school safety plans at the district and at each individual site level. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to find gaps. Well, the district is saying this, but the sites are saying something different. Or maybe it's just too broad. The district doesn't give any guidance, so the schools are just trying to figure it out by themselves, and there's a big gap in that aspect. And we're taking those plans and and those systems, and we're comparing them to what does the county require? What does the state require? Are there any federal mandates? So first we want to get them in compliance, and then we start to look at different best practices. So what is the you know, U.S. Department of Education saying regarding um, should you be doing lockdown-only approach or an options-based approach? And we're trying to identify those gaps. And then we go into each individual site and we conduct interviews with the administrators. So we're trying to get their specific perspective on what is the climate in all, all things safety. Who has the authority? We go in and observe their training to identify is there a gap between what the policy says and the training. And then we send out surveys to the entire staff as well. And we then come back and observe their drills um, for each of whatever the emergency drills are, whether it's a lockdown drill or secure campus, earthquake drills, obviously here in California. We're collecting all of this data, and again, we're trying to identify themes. We're trying to see where the possible gaps are and how can we fill those gaps um, in in the best manner uh, appropriate. 
And then very site-specific considerations. So what is the student population at this site? What are the demographics? Um, what are What is the physical infrastructure? You know, we work with districts where, where the sites themselves are, are very drastically different. So that's now going to impact um, their procedures and their protocols when it comes to safety or even drills themselves. Um, and I think that's something that we really miss is there's a lot of people where they come in, they're like, we just want one and done. Yep. People are saying yeah. we need safety. We need safety done now. What can we do? Uh, let's buy security cameras. And, yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm pulling my hair out because I'm like, man, you're, you're missing such a beautiful opportunity to build this the right way. Right. Right. And they need a copy of School of Airs, right? Rethinking they need a copy of America. School of Airs. And, and one thing that I really found is what happens is, is as we start this this kind of process, especially when, when, when a district or a school is bought in 100% to, to taking the time to do it correctly, is initially from the staff, there's some hesitation. And what happens is as we go in, to each of those different sections, we get more buy-in, we get more buy-in, we get more buy-in. And it's so important, it's, any leader understands change management. You can implement all the policies you want, all the protocols, but if the people who are on the ground aren't bought into that program, then it's not gonna be successful. So it's incredible for us to fully partner with a site and to go on that journey with them and to literally leave a training, a safety training and the teachers are clapping or they say, I can't yeah. wait for this drill on Wednesday. I can't wait to do a lockdown drill on Wednesday. I'm thinking like, man, that's a beautiful thing. It is. That they're excited to do this correctly. And, and here's the truth as a trainer. I have one opportunity. I have one opportunity to get that teacher to buy in to the training and the systems that we've decided to adopt. Because if that teacher doesn't believe in an options-based system or that our you know, evacuation drill is the best thing for her and her students, she's not going to get buy-in from her students. And it just doesn't impact those 30 kids in her class now. It impacts every single student she will have from here on out. So Absolutely. we need to realize that as trainers. So Morgan, you made um, several uh, points that I want to go back and, and amplify uh, for for the audience because th th this is incredible and also I appreciate on social media um, you know when you're participating in leading trainings that you share some of that because I, you do phenomenal work so I'm always I'm always like yeah Morgan's out there today with with his team and and they're doing a drill at a time when people usually don't have a drill or it's raining a little bit but you know this is when you need to do it right um, so a, a few things one is you're talking about assembling a, a group of um, content experts to help you uh, specific to whatever location you're at. So what you're talking about um, is small group theory, which um, I've written about, I didn't write about in School of Airs, but I've written about in other publications. But small group theory is the way to avoid groupthink, which you talked about. Groupthink is when you get people together and they're kind of like waiting for someone to say, I think this is the way we should go. And everyone's like, yep, let's go that way. Instead of really thinking out, they're just kind of going with one or two people, you know, their, their positions. So small group is is seeking out those experts. You bring them together based upon the site. They give their input and then they kind of dissolve. And if you go to another site, it'll probably be a different set of experts that'll match what that site is. So that's a sign of, of I think, a really solid, thoughtful organization, which you're describing. So you talk about, um, you know, the need to meet with people, the need to meet with administrators. And, and people forget that a school administrator, superintendent, that's a three-year tenure. That 
job is three years, the principal two to three years. So you have a lot of turnover in these positions. So even if, if um, you know, they've put together a safety plan three years ago, it's likely they've had a significant turnover in their administrative ranks. So you need to go out, talk to these people, as you indicated, you interview people. That's a qualitative process. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't engage in interviews. A lot of safety professionals will just look at data sets or just come in and, you know, whatever, pull out a tape measure, take some photos and whatever, and it all becomes this quantitative numbers. And what you talked about with the interviews, that brings in qualitative. It just strengthens everything. So excellent. Um, And training. Okay. I'm, I'm just excited because this is what I... This is what I talk about, right? And you're putting this into practice. Training, making sure that staff are appropriately trained based upon the needs that are present at that school, right? That's the unit of measure. Making sure that you have induction for when new staff and students come in. Asking the question of who has authority to make decisions. Um, I've been in those conversations, right? And, and I've heard staff say, I wouldn't, you know, for example, you know, fight for my life, for my life of the life of my students, um, unless I had permission from an administrator, because I don't want to be sued. I'm like, whoa, okay, so this is an area we need to talk, or I've I've had multiple teachers, you know, I'll just ask them, okay, there's literally a fire here on campus. What would you do? And overwhelmingly, they say, I would call an administrator. Overwhelmingly. And it, it's it's back to that, it, and you talk yeah. about this a lot in your book, it comes down to empowering our staff with authority. We have to empower them with authority. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, And for anyone wanting to do a, a case study, um, you know, research Our Lady of Angels in 1958, um, where 93 uh, between nuns and students perished a fire at the end of the day, a uh, fire that was discovered early, but because the nun who discovered it was trying to find um, her superior to make a decision than to call the fire department to sound the alarms, several minutes uh, passed and lives were lost. And you, I, Mar- Mar- Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is a, a phenomenal case study okay. on yeah. the lack of empowerment as well, you know, with, with the delay in, in sending out that code red message. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to anchor one more time to what you talk about is working at a school level, a unit of measurement. It's not this one size fits all. Someone right. saying, here's here's the check, give me the binder, and boom, we show it to the board and we're good. So getting to that unit of measure to a school, what you do is so important. So I just wanted to bring that up again to people. If someone isn't coming into your school when they do a safety assessment, if they're just stopping by the district, being at district office, that's not effective. What you're doing Morgan is effective. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors. 
Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us on. We have, we have some different questions. There's so much. You're you know, so um, versed, so brilliant in these areas. So where, where did this term lockdown come from and, and why is lockdown not enough? Yeah, so lockdown is something that really post-Columbine started to become uh, prevalent. Um, Alice did a study, and they asked that same question. And okay. Post-Sandy post Hook, they wanted to know, lockdown has been the go-to response for more than the past decade at that point. And they asked that question, where did this come from? And what they were able to do is they traced the roots um, back to L.A. Unified School District, and what they found is that lockdown was actually designed in response to drive-by shootings. And they actually literally used to call them drive-by drills. And the idea was is if you were outside, you would get stakeholders inside. If you were already in a classroom, you would close the blinds. And it wasn't the blinds. It was those big curtains. Yes. Right? The big curtains. I remember, yeah. <laughs> um, you would turn off the lights and you'd get below, below the windowsill. There was actually no protocol to lock or close your door. Why? Because the threat that we were facing was an outsider threat, both in location and the relationship to the site. It's not aligned to the type of threat that we are seeing in these school active shooter events. These are insider threats. When we're looking at middle school or high school level, over 95% of the attacks are conducted by current or former students. What does that mean? That means they're already on our campus when the attack unfolds. That means they're completely familiar with our security infrastructure, how to bypass that security infrastructure. Um, when we look specifically at the weapons used, overwhelmingly handguns are the preferred weapons in these attacks. What does that mean? That means they're able to conceal that weapon as they get onto our campus and bypass our security infrastructure. So lockdown was never created for the type of threat that we face today. Lockdown has its place, and we still encourage sites to use lockdown. However, it's very similar to secure campus in terms of you're trying to prepare people if they need to elevate to possibly an options-based response. So a secure campus is used if there is a human threat external to the campus. Generally speaking, what we see is maybe there's police activity right outside the campus. Okay. And you want to lock the perimeter. You move all your stakeholders inside. They can continue teaching. But why do you do that? Because if that threat gets onto your campus, they are now more prepared to respond. Essentially, what you're doing is you're buying more time for your stakeholders. For us, lockdown is used if there is a potential threat on campus, but they're not actively harming stakeholders. So maybe I have a non-custodial parent trying to take a kid. Maybe right. I have a transient or someone with some mental health issues on my campus. Maybe I have an extremely hostile parent on my campus. So now I'm preparing myself. There is a possibility this could elevate to an active threat, but it's not there yet. And again, what that does is it helps us buy more time. So I truly believe lockdown should be taught. And if we look at the frequency, right, and, and when we're doing our threat analysis, right. you're going to need a lockdown more than you're going to need an options-based response. However, 
the way that we've been teaching lockdown, what it does is it, it's essentially a passive response, right? If all you've ever done is taught your students to get under your desk, essentially ducking cover, right? What happens when that threat materializes in their classroom? Because if we dissect those 42 incidents even further, what we find overwhelmingly is they don't start from outside the campus and work their way in. They start inside of our safe space. They're already in our hallways. They're already in our cafeteria. They're already in the classroom and the violence begins. And if the only thing I've ever done is to tell you to get under your desk, then that is what you're going to default to. You also... So when you were talking about, um, let's say, in the neighborhood, uh, there's something going on, and then it, the school would technically go into, the term would be lockout, right? When the doors are locked on the outside, but um, the classroom doors would still be open and students would be able to, to go about their classes. And if it moved on campus, then there might be a lockdown issued. That's the that way that... Yes, okay. that's the way we approach it. There, there's definitely different, um, uh, you know, terminology. That's another challenge we see with a lot of schools right. is the definitions, right? We talked about definitions earlier, and there's a lot of confusion even among staff about the difference between these, you know, a secure campus or a shelter in place or a lockdown or an options-based response. There's a lot of, you know, overlap in terms of what staff members believe those those things mean. So one of the big things we do is one of the first things we do when we're providing our recommendations is to standardize those definitions throughout the entire district and then to standardize the communication protocols that would, you know, would initiate whatever that response is. Um, but, yeah, depending on what system uh, that, that you're using, a lockout may also be considered a secure campus um, or, or a lockdown might be considered someone are already on campus. So, Morgan, um, conflated terminology. So, uh, I, I've written about this. I believe it is a huge um, uh, issue in, in the school safety world uh, because people, for example, Wisconsin, where I'm at, 421 school districts, 2,200 school buildings, over 50,000 classrooms. So, um, when we have students moving from school to school, families moving, teachers moving, what they had in school A might be, for terminology, might be significantly different than school H, for example. And it usually is, like there, there, is, um, there isn't much inter-rater reliability. And then, thankfully, we don't have people um, doing all of these code words, you know, anymore. Um, you know, like there's a there's a condition blaze orange or, you know, one I went to was Mary Poppins is in the building. And that was supposed to be if there was an intruder. This was like years ago. And well, people that, are like, what? That comes from a military or a law enforcement background. And, okay. and, and that's where, you know, for me, I'm in a unique position because I'm a law enforcement trainer as well. And I understand how schools get to that point. Because what, what, what does the U.S. Department of Education, any county office of education tell you to do? Go talk to your local police department and have them help you develop this plan. So they come in with that mindset where we have to use brevity codes or these communications where we don't want the enemy or the threat to know what we're talking about. And we still see sites that, that they lean towards us. Should I actually call a lockdown or an options-based response? That means I'm going to alert them. If there was someone on your campus there to harm people on your campus, one, they know where they're at, and two, they know what they're there to do. 
right? It's about giving other people more time. More time equals more options. More options means an increase in survivability for that incident. So talking about more time, um, you know, for years, uh, uh, school intruder on campus, that was a five to eight minute um, event. And recent events have been, you know, less than 100 seconds. So as you indicated, time, um, every second you can gain in time is extremely valuable. And yeah, so thanks for pointing that out. Frequency of training. So tell me your your recommendation for frequency of training, um, because sometimes schools will say, we've done this training, um, but you know, it happens the first week of the school year. So yeah, if you moved here October 15th, yeah, your training will happen next September. So tell me about how you work with frequency of training and then also onboarding for new staff and new students. You know, we have uh, 55 million students attend school every day in the United States. And, you know, about 10 million of those students will will change schools uh, intra-year. So, um it's a it's a big area. Help me to understand how you work with schools to prepare that onboarding for their staff and students. Yeah, it's it's definitely challenging. Um, in terms of onboarding, I think having some sort of video based education is great as long as we're not completely dependent on that for our training. That is an introduction to whatever we're talking about. Essentially, I'm trying to expose you to the terminology, the protocols but that should not completely replace any training that we have. And obviously it's not gonna replace drills. Um, you know, being an administrator, the challenge is, is that your educator's time is extremely valuable Absolutely. to them. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about public schools, now you're talking about unions and limitations on their time. So when we go in and work in with districts, one of the first questions I, I have to ask is how much time do we have? And then from there, we need to prioritize whatever emergency training that they've decided that they want to focus on. Um, so I think some sort of online badging system where you can actually track who's taken the training. Um, I think they need to be very bite-sized pieces of content uh, that again, because he, here's my priority. If I'm working with any school and you told me all we have is an hour to work with, you know, these staff members. For that entire hour, all we're going to talk about is definitions and communication procedures. It is the most important thing in my mind is to understand under what conditions a certain response needs to be initiated, who has the authority to initiate that response, and then, of course, how do you utilize the communication systems in place. There is nothing more important in my mind because the quicker I can warn people, now we go back to buying time, right? And more time, again, right. equals more options in any emergency, and that's what I really want, want to get across. Um, in terms of the training itself, what we recommend, and uh, again, it kind of depends. The first thing I'm going to ask is what are the state mandates or possible federal mandates in place? Um, of course, we know for like fire drills, we have to do them every single month. Um, but when we're working with our sites, if they've adopted an options-based system, so essentially they've differentiated between lockdown and an options-based system, we will recommend at least one lockdown drill a year and one options-based response drill a year at a minimum. Okay, so define option-based. We've talked about it a few times, but I want to make sure, you know, we talked about, um, you know, clarity in terminology. So define options-based training. 
So an options-based response, what that means is there is an assailant or assailant on your campus, and they are actively trying to harm or kill your stakeholders, or you reasonably believe they are going to harm right. or kill your stakeholders. Uh, and what options-based is at, at its base is that every single person, and we're even talking about students at this point, has the authority to choose the option or to choose a response that they feel is best for their safety based off of the very limited information available. So you have the authority to take your own safety into your own hands. Now, what is the challenge on a pre-K to 12 campus? We have students. What is right. the ability of those students? What, what is the, you know, and both physically and, you know, cognitively, what are they able to do and decide? And it's hard as educators to think that you're going to do anything other than completely control that class, you know, in that moment. Right. Because for an educator, accountability is the most important thing. So one thing, and, and this is probably the biggest challenge in this industry right now, is what is even appropriate to introduce to students and at what age is it appropriate? You know, there's a big debate. Should we even be doing lockdown drills or options-based drills, period, right. within our schools? What are the negative consequences of drills um, within our schools? Uh, to me, that's a trainer and a leadership failure, not a failure of the need to do the training, but the design of the training themselves. Right. Yeah. We, I, I wrote an article, um, Why No Safety Drills for Students with Disabilities. It was published by Kappen in fall. And the article uh, centered to school districts who were exempting students with disabilities, for example, autism, from participating in school safety drills, any type of school safety drills, um, because it, it um, might dysregulate the student, you know, might cause um, that student to, to be resistive. And, you know, so they're coming up with, with a form that parents could, could exempt, which is illegal. It, it violates ADA. Um, so I worked with attorney James Sibley uh, out in, in San Jose. We did a podcast. I've, I've worked with uh, educators in my state and, and, of course, getting the article out of saying the problem is that um, whatever you're doing for training, you, you need to modify it and keep modifying it, calibrate it to each individual student. And now that people might say, well, come on, Dave, be realistic. Well, I worked at the Wisconsin School for the Blind for four years. So I worked with students who were blind, who also had autism, who also had mobility, um, disabilities. So imagine all of those um, together, comorbid conditions. And we made sure that every student participated and was instructed. And actually, there was a fire at the school when I was there, a two-alarm fire. All of the students were able to evacuate um, successfully. Now, it was nonlinear. It was like during a passing time before lunch, but people knew where to go. Um, and it was because that's, that's the type of instruction. So you, you talked about options, people recognizing their options. Um, I found, and I don't know, Morgan, if, if you found this too, but I found people, um, people are not trained. People don't do an efficient job of recognizing the options before them. Um, I've done tabletop exercises, for example, tabletop exercises with K-12, with universities, when I talk about a tabletop exercise, I'll say, listen, the only thing I am going to, to look at are two things. One is that you're making decisions, and two is that every point along this journey of this tabletop, you are recognizing the options available to you. I'm not, we're not assessing how 
well you did, if you made the right choices, one that you made choices. And or the first one is that you inventoried your options ongoing. And the second is that you made decisions. And that blows people away. It's not what they're used to. They're used to following a very linear prescribed set of, you know, like, for example, you know, we had a scenario. Um, it's a bomb threat. So students are leaving a high school and one of the injects, one of the, the uh, sub-scenarios where some students were unwilling to leave their possessions or backpacks in school because, you know, they had their, um, you know, mobile devices or something in their, or their, their expenses. So I'm not going without it. So now what do you do? I mean, people are like, I don't know. You know, do you, do you forcibly take the student out? Do you let them take the backpack out with them? Do you, I mean, where do you go? And people are just like, I don't know. I didn't think about this. So, um, I, it, you know, this this is just amazing. So um, you talked about, again, that two hours. If I had two hours, what would I do? I, and you're right. School safety um, competes with instructional, you know, time. It competes with, or it competes with um, that you have to do trainings for bloodborne pathogens and all of these other things. And schools typically have, what, maybe three days generously of in-service time built in. Right. Um, so there isn't a lot of time. You have to be, you know, we would all want to devote more time to school safety instruction and, and really, uh, you know, you mentioned that I, I did, um, I did some work with a district and they said, um, yeah, when you come in, Dave, like if you could keep it about 15 minutes, like that would really help us out in today's schedule. I'm like, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I can, for 15 minutes, um, this is, this is where I can go, which is just a kind of a small pep talk on on whatever but i said this isn't a training like you understand that right and um wow so tell me tell me about um no or, or i guess the the issues you see with the lack of accountability oversight a learning objective someone coming into a district and saying what you're doing is effective what you're doing isn't effective because more or less, it's like you've done it, and then you move on. No one measures. No one's coming right. in from the state department of justice, yeah. the insurance carrier. Nobody is doing that. So, tell me what you see and how you fix that. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if we can fix it. <laughs> um, so uh, a, a couple of things, and and, and this is what I, I love so much about your book, especially is is Thank you. it's it's really so simple how we make training and drills effective, and. You start with a learning objective. It blows my mind when I go in and do an audit on a training and there's literally no objectives tied to that training. You would never as an educator teach a, you know, a subject without, without having a goal, without tying it right. in you know, um, to, to something else. So for us to go in and say, well, what's the purpose of this training? Well, it's lockdown training. Okay, but what are your specific objectives for your teachers and what are your specific objectives for your administrators because those should be different things because they have different roles are you providing objectives specifically for students because they have different roles so that's one of the biggest things that we do when we go in and we work with a site it's not just conducting training our objectives for administrators is how do you design an effective drill because we want them because they're the continuity they're the ones continuing forward you know, that district's not going to keep hiring me, you know, every single year to come back and do their training. And they shouldn't. They should get to the point where they're able to confidently, um, you know, produce those those same results. So the the learning objectives are, are so critical. And then just because we do a training, we're not done. We need to continue to collect data. 
So when we're done doing the training or the drill, we do a debrief as a leadership team. And then we send out surveys again and we try to get input directly from those teachers. What I see a lot is maybe there's one or two classrooms where we see, you know, some challenges that they didn't really meet the objectives we were trying to meet. Well, there, there's no loop in that information. None of that information gets pushed out to other teachers. Or right. as leaders, we don't solicit feedback because I can't be in every single classroom at all times. You know, I'm going in and I'm just observing what I observe. You know, I need feedback from those teachers. Well, what? how can we make these things better? And one thing that we ask that I think is extremely important in every single survey is did any of your students or staff members experience any trauma during this drill? Did you have a negative emotional reaction from someone in your classroom? What was that and how can we prevent that going forward? Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Um, so it's just con this continuous loop, and there's been times literally in the middle of training where teachers raised their hand and said, hey, have we thought about doing this this way? And I'll look over at, you know, someone from the district and they'll say, that's genius. Let's do it that way. You know, you're the one on the ground. And, and that's the reason, you know, we're so blessed is because we actually have educators that are part of our team. You know, my wife being one of them, she's a teacher on special assignments. She's essentially a coach for other teachers. So she's able to provide so much for us when we go in and work with sites because she's an educator herself. She right. speaks the language and she understands, you know, for me, I was an infantry Marine. I'm now an emergency management consultant. You know, my scope is limited. Sure. And there's times when I go to her and I'm like, what do you think about this? And she's like, nope, that's not going to happen. And that's the limitations when we lean completely on like our local law enforcement. They're right. going through the perspective that they know and they understand. They don't see it from a site specific or from an educator's perspective. And what does that do? we lose the buy-in or we lose the credibility of our program. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and in Wisconsin, for example, I mean, it is mandated that you need to, uh, you know, work with, with local law enforcement. So um, a lot of districts do that in the exact manner that you indicated. They ask law enforcement to come in. Law enforcement will conduct a, a drill, which is um, innate to their, to their training and, you know, part of that, I, I, I press back on the school districts and actually the district um, where I reside in summer had a training and I met with a school administrator afterwards and said, you know, what were your learning objectives, as you just indicated, for this? I mean, were you trying to test your two-way radios? Were you trying to test response time where people would stage assets because um, less than a half mile away we have um, 
a hospital. So were you trying to work a perimeter and all these? And they're like, I don't know, like whatever the police were doing. And I said, okay, but like, tell me three or four, three or four things, right? That you, and, and no, they, they hadn't. And so then it was, well, going forward, you know, would you consider this? I mean, working ahead of time of trying to, from a school standpoint, you know, you're trying to understand, you know, even how responders are going to interact with, with students. Maybe you could have, you know, role play some of that. I know officer Bart Barta, um, who's on Twitter as autism cop, his son, um, Daniel has autism. I talked about uh, the work that Bart does during my PBS presentation. He goes and works with school districts specifically, training um, SROs, local law enforcement, how to have successful interactions with students with disabilities, students with autism. Um, so, you know, you talked about getting input from staff and having that whole loop come around. Uh, one of the questions that, that I ask, and my, in my role, I typically do not go on site and do a physical environment training. It's not my expertise. I, I don't have knowledge in that. You know, I'm more about, you know, staff induction, working with students with disabilities. But <laughs> a question I'll have is, well, how how effective is the PA system? And they're like, yeah, well, it doesn't work in that hallway. There's a few rooms over there. doesn't work. I mean, like, this building's like five years old. And so, um, so did you tell anyone? I, I don't know. I guess some people know about it. And it's like, that's communications. Like your PA system doesn't work. And, but, you know, they also said, well, this is the first time anybody really ever asked. Um, and it's like, whoa, you know, so though, you know, what, what you're, you're bringing up, you know, we have to ask the right questions to be informed. Um, and we have to, you know, look yeah. at the site. You know, you asked something earlier, you said, how, how do you do these assessments or how do you get feedback? Another thing that I see in this industry, and, and you can obviously speak to this, you talk about it in your book, is, you know, you'll have a consulting firm come in and do an assessment of that school. Well, in actuality, that consulting firm is an engineering firm that does infrastructure improvement and sells cameras and builds cameras and does gates. So really, really what you're getting is a $100,000 sales pitch because what they're there to do is to identify things that they can then get contracted to come in and fix. And it's something where, where for me, it's, it's you know, I, I don't have the portfolio of some of these huge, um, you know, conglomerates that are out there. And districts, when they're assessing who to bring in, they, they look at this portfolio and they're like, oh my gosh, they've worked with all these people. Right. But what they don't get is an objective analysis of what they need. I, I cannot tell you how much I cringe when I see brand new security cameras in a PA system that doesn't work or right. a, a site where every teacher doesn't have a two-way radio in their hand. Um, you know, it, it just it just it hurts me so much because I'm like, God, there's such an opportunity here and there's so much more value in investing in things like your communication system. I understand that it maybe doesn't look as good, right? to the uh, to the PTA or the PTO or you know the parents because they can't physically see those things like they can the security cameras uh, but there's just it, it's one of the challenges districts face because they're leaning on so-called experts who really don't have the best um, intentions for the, for that site when you really think about it right and when I spoke on PBS uh, to be a safety expert, is a it's a low barrier to claim that title because you right. don't need registration certification now certainly people you know you know like you have have built a professional portfolio you know to back that but there are many instances where it can be you're fulfilling a, a 
you know, a job application post, and two weeks later, you're off selling, um, yeah, a sophisticated camera system or something else, and you might not have any background in K-12 education or any real network that you're working with to become informed. You're really just selling a product. But schools have a hard time telling the difference because somebody comes in with a, a nice, you know, presentation and they're, they're you know, they're um, articulate in, in what they're they're talking about. And um, it, it's, there's two things, you know, customer perceived value. Is there a chance that this could improve our safety or in some outlandish or outlier statistical circumstance, could this one thing help us? Um, and if the answer is yes, people will often spend the money. And the second part is social proof. One school district does it, the neighboring school districts see it, they do it. Then more districts do it and more districts do it. And when you boil it down, it's like, why did you do this? Well, eventually it started with one district that did it and they everybody else believes they vetted it. But then, you know, again, you've talked about it. It's your own site. What works here? Maybe that right. was appropriate. Maybe that was vetted over here. But just because it's over here doesn't mean that you need the same products. And I see that. Um you know, and again, going to back to what you said when we're talking about learning objectives or who you bring in, we see these these crazy stories in schools, especially with lockdown drills or options-based response drills, where there is legitimate emotional and psychological trauma to the students or the staff, or physical trauma, whether they're actually getting shot with projectiles as part of the training um, you know, there's kids crying in the classroom because they don't know whether or not it's a drill or an actual emergency. You know, we have students texting their parents thinking that there's actually an assailant on campus. Why? Because the principal decided to do a completely random, unannounced, you know, lockdown drill. Those failures come when we're leaning on those individuals or those people, one, without having objectives, and then two, that don't have aren't taking those considerations into mind uh, one of the first things we do into it when i go and sit at a site is bring in your counselor bring in your school psychologist they need to be part of this discussion i need to know what challenges that we may have on this site and how can we help overcome some of those challenges and a lot of it goes back to what you've discussed is the lack of learning objectives uh, we work at sites and i can't tell you how many times especially when we're doing our initial audit will observe a lockdown drill and staff are, are pounding on the doors um, before they go in the classroom. And I'll ask them, I'll say, well, what's the point of pounding on the door? Well, we want to make sure that they're not opening the door. Okay, if that's actually one of our objectives, is there a more responsible way we can achieve that objective? Is that something right. that we can actually discuss in the classroom versus pounding on the door and scaring students as we're going around? Um, there's, you know, some agencies, and I see this a lot, especially with law enforcement trainers, and I understand why they do it, where they'll be giving a, a training to um, the teachers specifically, and they're shooting them with some sort of projectile, whether it's an airsoft gun or even a Nerf gun or something of that nature. And the idea behind that training approach is I need staff members to realize that they don't have enough time, that they need to take some sort of proactive measure. They just can't essentially hide under their desk and hope that they survive. Our teachers don't need to be shot with airsoft guns to understand those consequences. There's different ways that we can achieve that objective. But as a military person and as a law enforcement trainer, I understand that mentality because I'm training other law enforcement officers. Right. And that is an appropriate setting to introduce those training techniques. It's not appropriate in our school. 
And again, what happens as we over lean on these people or we overemphasize the need to seek out these resources, just because you're a, a law enforcement officer doesn't mean you're an expert in either active shooter response or school safety in general. So what role can those officers talk about? Well, let's talk about law enforcement, communication with law enforcement. Let's talk about interaction with law enforcement. Let's talk about expectations after an emergency during a response. Um, and let's, let's have them come in specifically to achieve those learning objectives. So it, it, really all those things tied back together, what you're talking about, there is no accountability. There is no oversight. There are no learning objectives. And when the U.S. Department of Education or your county office of education says, hey, contact your local law enforcement, what do you do as a principal? You follow that direction. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, 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 it's a challenge, and a lot of it's just overcoming uh, you know, that mindset. And it's not to say that there's not officers out there that are not phenomenal at what they're doing and know this even more than I know it or more than you know it. Right. It's just that overemphasis and, again, getting that single perspective versus seeking out those resources that, that might challenge that status quo a little bit. So, um, so a few things. One is, is I, I think you've pointed it out. If you're a school administrator, um, you need to ask whoever's coming into your uh, environment, you know, to, to propose uh, doing safety trainings, helping you with safety trainings, ask them, what are the learning objectives? How are, give me examples of learning objectives. And if they can't, or if they just say, well, you know, we're, we'll figure them out as we go or whatever, that's insufficient, right? That means they don't have any idea what you're talking about. And show me um, the data and the resources that support those objectives. Right. Right. And, and it, you, you gave a perfect example, Morgan. Um, someone, you know, pounding on a, a door to make sure that nobody opened a door that had been secured. Okay. So learning objective is you're trying to find out if people will open a secured door during a lockdown. So then, you know, that's what you're going to measure. So you're going to have some means to do that, which aren't going to introduce trauma, you know, into that situation. So that that's outstanding. Um, and boy, but, oh, okay. So much. If anybody can see this, these are my, these are my notes. I've been going crazy here with, with writing. Um, but also, um, you know, we, we also don't have templates of, of here's, um, you know, from start to finish. Here's an example of, of an assessment in a district. Here's how some things were looked at. Here's how emergency management, you know, interviews with emergency management. That isn't done by the, our Department of Public Instruction, Department of Ed, Department of Justice. It's, it's kind of this thing of saying local control, the district, you know, all districts have to tailor things for themselves. But then again, we just don't end up with information that helps us say like, well, really, how should we do this? Like, what's the expectation? And as I shared earlier in my community, after the school district got completed their drill, um, which I did not, which did not have learning objectives, um, you know, it was, it was very frustrating for me because I, I did sit down and said, you know, as a parent, okay, I have two daughters in the school system. Um, if you would have up on your website or even a communication out to parents saying, we're doing this drill with law enforcement on this day. And here are four things that we are going to measure. Uh, one is like our two-way radios. One is to, you know, where people, you know, put it in, in terminology that people understand where, you know, when people pull up with emergency vehicles and cars that we still can get in and out of our buildings and then whatever it is, like four things, I'd be like, this is great. 
Now I understand what you're trying to accomplish. I understand what my daughters are. It's you know, about kind that of whole experience. And and yet, like you know, it's it didn't happen, and I'm not sure that it'll happen again. But um, I, no, I know in my work going forward, I'm putting a lot of emphasis in saying it's literally. I mean, because people be like objectives, like what twenty? I'm like four, four yeah. objectives. Yeah. <laughs> like that's it. And you know, what, you what really what you're talking about is a community based approach, right? And it's it's no different than you would approach education. You're just applying it now to emergency management. So those letters that you're talking about, what you're doing is you're helping to explain to the parents and the community, why are we doing this? Why is it relevant? Because the school has two jobs, to educate and then to keep our kids safe while they're being educated. That's at the basis, their two main priorities. So this is how we're going to achieve those. And what a great opportunity now for that school to train parents. You could send out in that same letter here are three do's and three don'ts during an emergency. Do not call the school. If you call the school, you're impeding people from calling out and contacting emergency services. Do not show up to the school because you're blocking emergency vehicles from getting to our site and keeping your kids safe. Do go here or do go on our Facebook page. Whatever it is, you know, their protocols are. What an incredible opportunity to train those parents and help them understand and put them at ease. Because let's be honest, as any parent, you hear there's an emergency at that site, you're going to that site, right, right? right? And I don't blame you for that. But if we help prepare you with the knowledge of why that's actually a negative and could hurt your child, then maybe we can have success if there's, you know, a situation. Um, same thing during a drill. If I'm doing a drill, a fire drill at school, why can I not test my emergency communication system to parents? Hey, this is a test message. We did a drill in an actual emergency you would we would expect you to do this or you would get information from us this way what an what an incredible opportunity to leverage every single asset that you have in a very simple way i completely agree and and we know um, if we tell people ahead of time what to expect they typically will follow that you know so if you're telling them ahead of time you know don't come to the school don't call you'll still have some people to do that but um, you'll have several people who will say, this is what I've been told to do during an emergency. So, yeah, what you're saying is, is let, let staff know, let students know ahead of time, have these discussions. Um, and, we, you know, we underestimate, James Sibley talked about this, Attorney James Sibley, we underestimate how um, competent and capable people are, kids and adults, if we talk to them ahead of time and empower them. Um, so, I mean, everything that you're saying, you know, bolsters, um, you know, what other experts, um, you know, have, have said to me. So, um, but, you know, let's, let's, this has been, this has been absolutely tremendous, uh, Morgan, uh, I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, but, but yeah, um, you know, it's sometime, uh, the sun's going to set here. So I, I want to be respectful to your time. Let, let's, let's bring this to a close with talking about your doctoral study and why you chose to uh, pursue a doctoral degree, um, I, you know, I've, I've completed a, a doctoral degree, you know, thought it was, was outstanding, um, and, and what you're hoping to gain out of, um, you know, the specific area that you're, you're studying. How are you going to put this into your everyday practice? So I've been blessed, you know, I, when, when I completed my master's, it going on to my doctoral really wasn't something 
I necessarily had on my radar, but I had some um, incredible professors that really encouraged me to move forward. And then my wife, of course, was really pushing me to continue to do it. And I, I just love the research part of it. I love getting down into the weeds of the, of the data and really trying to identify those things and make connections to the real world. And of course, in my master's program, I also focused on, on the school safety aspects, specifically active shooter um, events within K-12 schools. And I wanted to continue that research and do it more in depth. So that's my goal with, with my doctoral program is to take this data and my main purpose is to identify the need for an options-based response training, that we need to have a mandate to conduct this training. And then the second part is how do we do that in a responsible and trauma-informed manner as well? And so we're looking at we're looking at that data produced by the FBI and other agencies, and we're trying to identify who, who where do these attacks occur? Okay, are they high school or the junior high level? And then specifically within those environments, where does the attack manifest itself? Where does the actual violence begin? Who are the people that are conducting these attacks? What is their relationship and how does that impact the need or maybe it doesn't impact the need to conduct this sort of training? Uh, what are the weapons involved? What are the timelines of these events? What is the response time of law enforcement? You talked about earlier, what we're seeing from our data is the average K-12 active shooter event is two to five minutes in length, whereas the average law enforcement response for outside agencies is six to 12 minutes. Well, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas showed us what happens in three and a half minutes, 17 killed, 17 wounded. Um, there, I mean, there's, there's videos and there's, there's case studies out there where literally within 10 or 15 seconds you have multiple victims. So... We're, right. What we're trying to identify is what are the consistencies across all of these incidents and how does that impact our preparation and our response? Um, you know, you talk about writing books. My, my wife and I are, are in the process of writing a book ourselves in, in this area. And our focus is writing that book that is talking about that preparation and that response phase. Prevention is the most important aspect of what we're talking about. Prevention has to be the key. So I don't want people to think that we need to overemphasize the preparedness or the response phase. However, we know that no amount of prevention is necessarily going to stop all these incidents from happening. And again, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is probably the case study. If you have not read Why Meadow uh, Died, then then you right. you need to pause before you continue this conversation because it is so powerful um, an event to learn from and how we overcome in that aspect. So what we're trying, what I'm trying to do through my research and my study is to be able to focus those resources. We have limited time, limited money, limited availability. Um, where should schools really focus their efforts specific to active sailing events? Should we have training at all? If we are, what type of training does that need to look like? And then how do we responsibly prepare our staff members and our students? Morgan, I had um, the pleasure of Max Eden, a yes. co-author of Why Meadow Died, on, on my show. And Max and I have had communication. So, yes, yeah, as, as you've indicated, Why Meadow Died, um, Andrew Pollock and, and Max Eden co-authoring that book. Um, it, it is 
yeah, essential reading for anyone wanting to understand, um, yeah, really the, the politics procedures and failed practices uh, that contribute to um, a devastating outcome in school one safety. The, and then also to take away from that, the here's the chase. Easily one of the hardest books I've ever read. I, I honestly had to pause throughout that book. It, it was it was terrible, but at the same time, so enlightening. Morgan, thank you so much. Um, everybody, um, Morgan, um, Ballas on my uh, show today, on our show, the Safety Doc Podcast. He is the Director of Strategic Planning and Training with Campus Safety Alliance, a wealth of school safety knowledge, uh, also seeking his doctoral degree in emergency management. Hey, this has been, I think, um, uh, one of the most enjoyable shows. I, I You are so dialed in, uh, Morgan, and you know, again, I've been following your work. I appreciate your work, your contributions. This is is going to be a, a terrific um, show for people to listen to, to share it. That happens all the time. We'll get an email. Hey, listen to this show. I shared it with um, you know these people. Now this you know the district is listening to it. And thank you for everything that you are doing in uh, school safety. It's really been a privilege to have you on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I I just can't thank you enough. And thank you for the work you're doing. Your book is absolutely phenomenal and and it's something that a lot of people don't even want to talk about for fear of repercussions within the industry and i just i really thank you for your courage of of just putting that truth out there thank you yeah so i i am the author of the book school of airs rethinking school safety in america if you just type in school of airs on amazon you know it can come up it will come up and um it, it's now it has 21 reviews, so I, I, I'm having fun kind of reading um, how the book has impacted people from school board members to parents to parents in other countries who have, have, have purchased the book. So um, I, I feel, yeah, it, it's been a, a valuable contribution. I look forward to the second you know book that I'm working on, taking it even a step further. So everybody, um, how can people learn about you, Morgan? Um, is there a website they can can go to or yeah they're interested in learning about our organization um uh, campus-safety.us is our website if you're on twitter you can find me at campus safety dad um and i would love to connect with you what i tell people this all the time you you know i I speak at a lot of um uh, conferences across the u.s is it does me no good to have this knowledge and this data. I want to share it. So if there's any information I can share, I just we need to get it out there. That's what I've been called to do, and I've been blessed to be able to to work and, and pursue my passion. Um, and we just want to support any people any way that we can. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Morgan. Thank you. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.